Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. So I want to speak about God's masterpiece because we know artists by their most important creations. And many of them would have had a whole journey of creating art, but would have one masterpiece or one most important creation that, that really defines them as an artist. Michelangelo has the Sistine Chapel, Beethoven, the Fifth Symphony, George Lucas, the Star Wars Saga, and each masterpiece says something about its creator. The same is true of God. We catch a glimpse of God as the ultimate artist at work when we read the first two chapters of Genesis. In that moment, God spoke galaxies into being. He formed mountains and filled oceans. He planted forests with an incredible range of, of colors and, and variety. His playful side comes through in the animals that he created, like hummingbirds and ostriches and elephants. But the masterpiece of God's creation that reveals more than anything about God shows up when he made something called family. It is the masterpiece. The Bible tells us that when God created human beings, it was the crown of his creation, but it was not good when Adam was alone. God understood community because he is a community. He dwells in family. He dwells in community as the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity. And so God created us with that same relational need and created a context within which we can thrive and prosper and experience the goodness of God and, and, and be held accountable as we grow and 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 and. and be able to fulfill the purposes of God for our lives. And it is called family. He is the designer. He is the creator. It's his masterpiece that comes forth from his infinite wisdom and knowledge and his very character, establishing an environment in which people can thrive, the family. And at the end of the day, family is family. It's not up for redefinition or reinvention. Our world, due to its sinfulness and brokenness, has experienced a disruption in many families and things that God did not desire for us but became a part of the story due to the selfishness in people's hearts. But it still doesn't negate or disqualify God's original purpose. We uphold that original purpose. We uphold that original value. Family is the one place where you can be authentically you and know that you're going to remain loved. And that's why marriage is so powerful because it says, I'm committed to you in a covenant and, and I'm not running away no matter what I find. I'm going to believe in you, walk with you. And, 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 and so that enables us to, to have, I always tell Pre couples that are getting married when I'm doing premarital counseling, I always tell them marriage is the one place you can't hide. If you have an insecurity, if you have a flaw, if you, if you have a sin issue, whatever it may be, it will be revealed. But the great thing is the other person is not going to run away and find somebody better because they have said, I'm committed to you. And so that gives us a safe 
area where we can actually work on those things by the grace of God and have God help us while being honest with somebody. And the moment you begin to journey with somebody in the areas that you struggle, there is an exponential potential for improvement and for growth. That's, That's part of God's design. He gave us a safe space to be ourselves. You know, sometimes this is why when when people want to live in a way that is incongruent with who they authentically are, the first thing that they'll do is try and separate themselves from their siblings. Because how many of you know your siblings will call you out, right? Remember when you were in high school and you made this group of friends and you felt that like how you were raised and how you dressed and the music you listened to and the way you spoke wasn't cool anymore? And you had to become like your friends at school. And so you started speaking a little differently and you started dressing a little differently. And then then you started using kind of lingo that you'd never used before. And then you'd come home from a night out with your friends and your sibling would be standing there while you're talking and they would be looking at you with like squinty eyes. And eventually they'd say something like, why are you being weird? This is not who you are. We know who you are. This is not who you are. And so when people want to reinvent themselves or want to divert onto another path, the first thing that they'll do is separate themselves from family so that they don't have to be honest, that they don't have to be authentic. So family is family, and it's got, it's got all kinds of, of uh, design in it that God has established for the creation of mature adults that are serving God. That's the intention of it. That's the structure of it. We don't get to redesign it. We don't get to reinvent it because we are not the ones who created it. Last year, Lee and I got 24 hours in Paris. We were coming home from a ministry trip in Italy and uh, our flight, our connection was through Paris and we were so excited when our flight was delayed in Venice. We flew out of Venice, we were like five hours late. We are, we're gonna be staying in Paris. We got there and they told us, sorry guys, you've missed your flight. There's no other flights tonight. And we're like, oh man, Okay, which hotel are you putting us in? Turns out all the hotels in Paris were pretty much full. So they ended up putting us in Disneyland in Paris. We woke up the next morning. We got to the hotel like two in the morning. We woke up the next morning. There was like 1,500 kids just literally everywhere. Breakfast was a mess. Kids were climbing up the walls. They were hanging on the roof. It was chaos. We were like straight to the train station. Like we have our own kids, but we don't want them here in Paris. We want to get away from the kids today. And so we, we headed out to the train station. We went straight to the Louvre Museum and we decided we were going to just spend some time looking at the artwork that's there. And while we were there, we got the opportunity to see Leonardo da Vinci's famous Mona Lisa, his masterpiece. And all the other art is kind of like you walk past, you take your photo. There might be a few people taking photos in front of it. But the Mona Lisa is the, the kind of the crowning piece of the entire museum. And everybody wants a photo in front of it. So it's a room that's absolutely packed out there. Just hundreds of people standing in a line and you have to wait your turn to get to the front where you get a few seconds to take a photo and to admire the artwork. And so we did that. We stood in that queue, got to the front, took some photos, um, and, uh, and, and got to stand right in front of the Mona Lisa. But now imagine if I got up in front of that whole crowd. I got up, there's a little, like a little railing there. Imagine if I stood up on that railing and say, hey, everybody, please give me your attention. I just want to let you know that I'm declaring that from this moment, this is no longer a painting of Mona Lisa. This is now a painting of a pony. That's what it is. 
We're declaring it a pony. We're all going to agree together that it's a pony. We're going to put it in the media that it's a pony. We're going to post it on social media that it's a pony. And we're all going to live as if this thing is a pony. Is everybody agreed? It sounds ridiculous. It's what our world is currently doing. They want to redefine God's design. Here's the thing. I did not paint the Mona Lisa. So I don't get to call it something else. I don't get to reinvent it. I can only admire it and appreciate it or malign it, pervert it. But I cannot redesign it. I cannot do it because I'm not the designer, so I cannot change the design. Our generation, possibly more than any other generation before us, thinks itself wiser than God. Romans 1.22 says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They thought they knew better than God, so they became foolish. And so what they did as a result is they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man. They exchanged the, the infinite wisdom of God for, the, for human wisdom. The question today is, do you believe in God or do you believe the God that you believe in? Do you trust in Him? Do you trust in His wisdom and His knowledge? In writing to the Colossians about putting on the new self and living this new life of righteousness and this resurrected, powerful life that we get to lead, Paul only says a few things in the way of instruction. And, and the very first and most critical thing that he mentions is family. Before he gets into ministry and before he gets into preaching and before he gets into prayer and before he gets into all the other things, he starts with, God has called you to live a resurrected life. So put on love, let God's word dwell in you richly. And also wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, be kind to your kids. The very first thing he addresses in living a righteous life is the family. It starts at home. I think it was Mother Teresa who said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Colossians 3, 18 to 22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Submit to your husband, love your wives, obey your parents, kids, and fathers, don't provoke your children. Now, all of this works together. When an entire family is submitted to Christ, it works together. It's far easier for a wife to submit to her husband when her husband loves her and isn't harsh with her, right? It's easier for kids to obey their parents when parents don't provoke their children, right? And so this is not, you can't really have one without the other. You can, we can try and by God's grace, we'll do our best, but, but really this works when the entire family is submitted to the true head of the home. Who is the true head of the home? It's Jesus. And Paul writes that, he says that, I'm gonna uh, skip forward to a few verses later when he says this in 1 Corinthians 11 verse three. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. 
And so husbands, you're not just loving your, your wife like you're the ultimate authority in the home. No, the ultimate in the authority in the home is Jesus. And even when it speaks about pastors and elders in a church, it says you should lead the church, care for them, don't lord it over them, but guard them, guide them, teach them, look after them as ones who will give an account. So I believe I'm gonna give two accounts on judgment day. One account that I will give is how I led God's church, how I looked after God's people, whether or not I spoke truth to you and loved you and helped you. I'm not here for you to benefit me. I'm here to help you. But I'm also gonna give an account to how I led my family, how I raised my kids, how I taught them about the word of God. And I've done that with my boys. My boys are at that age where I can sit around the table now, got them all Bibles and highlighters and we, we work through the scriptures. We talk through the Bible. We're, I'm discipling my kids. It's my responsibility. We dedicated babies this morning. It's the responsibility of those parents to be pastors in the home, both mom and dad, to raise them knowing God. But ultimately, Jesus is the head of every man, and the head of his wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so this is the, the structure and the, the safety and the design of God that we get to enjoy the two essential elements of family is marriage and parenthood. And these two things reveal God's character like nothing else in creation. The love between a husband and a wife provide a glimpse of Christ's passionate devotion to his bride. And I love the fact that, that Jesus loved us even though, it says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loved us even when we were imperfect. And as husband and wife, we get to love each other even when we're imperfect provides a glimpse of God's love for us. The ups and downs of parenthood offer a compelling picture of God's tenderness. How many of you as parents sometimes wonder why you, you, go, you can't help but go the extra mile for your kids? How many of you have got kids that bring projects home or a letter home saying, hey, I've got a project, project due tomorrow and I need help? You know, my problem is I've got twins, so it's always times two. The other day they had to do they had to build an animal shelter of the animal that they chose. And for some reason, my one son, Leo, he chose a wild boar. I had to research where a wild boar lives and then recreate it with sticks and leaves and paint. And so long after they were in bed, I was still putting little sticks and leaves together. Like went to bed at two in the morning. It was like precious cargo the next morning. We like had, needed a police escort to the, to the school to make sure nothing happens to these projects. I've worked so hard on it. And sometimes Lee will say to me, you know, you don't have to go that far with these projects. I was like, I can't help myself. It's because I, I love them. Now, the Bible says if we are earthly people that are sinful, that are evil, and we know how to give our, our kids good gifts, how much more does God love us? It's an indication, it's a reflection of who God is. Now, when you think of your own marriage or even your own parenting, for those of you that are parents, you might be saying, I don't know if my marriage reflects that. Like, if you, if you heard the things I said to my kid in the car on the way to church this morning, you might not think it's a great reflection of the character of God. But I love the Bible's so encouraging. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. And then 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect 
in weakness. So God knows that you are weak, but then he gives you power for your weakness. So we get to live beyond our own abilities in the grace of God. Paul says, that's why I'll boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can rest on me. And so I can tell you right now today, I'm not a perfect parent and I'm not a perfect husband, but I am trusting in God's ability in my life to be better and better at it, to grow in it and to, and to be the kind of father that God would, would have me be. The invitation of Jesus is that we would lean into his power when we encounter our own weakness, even as parents. And I've often encouraged my wife saying, if we were perfect parents, our kids wouldn't need Jesus. But we're imperfect, and so they're gonna need Jesus too. This is a reflection of how Jesus loves us and reflects the gospel for us. So family reflects God's character, and it also provides a safe place where children can experience God's love through their parents and learn how to, in turn, love other people. Jesus himself was born in the context of family. God made sure, even though Jesus was God in the flesh, what did God the Father feel that he needed? A father and a mother. He could have said, well, I'm God, I'm the Father. No, Jesus, you're still gonna need an earthly father. The Son of God needed both. That's the design. And it was within the nurturing care of that earthly family that Jesus, the Bible tells us in the book of Luke, grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That's the idea, that our kids would grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And this is why there is no area of human life that is attacked, undermined, and subverted more than God's design for family. Satan, it's his greatest target. And the best way that he can do that, more than hardship, because if you're a believer, hardship often just brings you deeper into a deeper revelation of Jesus. Hardship doesn't conquer us as Christians. But the best way that Satan can attack the family is to do what he has always done. Genesis 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say. That's the attack right there. That's the tip of the spear. Did, did God really say all of that stuff that, you, you know, this is, how, this is how he designed things. This is how, this is what he's done. This is what, what his, his commands are. This is what the truth is. Did God really say that? He brings God's design into question. It's the work of the enemy. Then he lies to Eve and he says, in verse four, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is the follow-up. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an undermining of the validity of God's word and then the follow-up is, why don't you just be your own God? Did God really say that? No, let me tell you what you can do. Choose for yourself. Be wiser than God. You can choose what's right and wrong for yourself. Why do you need God's word to be the final authority in your life when you can choose for yourself? Let's fast forward a few verses and see how that worked out. Genesis 4.1, Adam made love to his wife, Eve, and she became, see, she was his wife, and became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. 
Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Eight verses later, or seven verses later, verse eight. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out into a field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. You see, when we, when we begin to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong, the Bible says sin waits at the door and its desire is for you. When we choose to be our own gods, we often lead ourselves in paths that will harm us. And it's exactly the reason why God is so serious because of his love for us. The same way that I am serious about my kids playing in the street. Why? Because I wanna harm them? No, because I love them. I wanna keep them from things that are gonna harm them. And God says this. But when Adam and Eve decided that they knew better than God, they started to experience the brokenness of sin. And where did it begin? within their own family. It's heartache. Can you imagine one son killing another son? You see, when we choose to be our own gods, we realize very quickly how poor we are at being God. And unfortunately, part of my role as a pastor has been to sit with many, many, many people over the years in the midst of this kind of regret. One couple I sat with just a few months ago, I met with them at a, at a coffee shop nearby and the wife had gotten to a place where she had decided that she was done with her marriage. They had two young kids and her husband had had some failures in business and they were struggling financially and she, just, she was just tired of it and she said, I, I just, I can't do it anymore. I want a better life. I want to marry somebody else. I don't want to be married to you anymore. And he begged her. He said, think about what it's gonna to do to our kids. Think about what it's gonna to do to our lives. And I sat with him for about two hours and I pleaded with her. I said, you don't understand what's on the other side of this. Just remain faithful. It's not all about how happy you are. It's about experiencing something greater than happiness, the joy of the unity that comes through commitment and family. I want you to know that. You're not gonna know it if you give up now. And I could see she was resolute. She wasn't gonna stay with him. She went through with the process. Three months later, we did his funeral here after he killed himself. And that same girl was standing on this stage with two little kids. And I had to conduct that funeral. And I was thinking, but don't lead yourself away from God. Don't walk away from God's heart for you. Submit to his design because then you will be the one who will benefit. God's heart for us is to dwell in health and prosperity. And we can experience those things if we submit to his guidance and his design. And so God gives us the design. And I almost can't believe that I, that I have to clarify this. But in Colossians, what we read about there was wives, husbands, children, fathers. So what is the structure of a family? A father, a mother, who are husband and wife married to one another and in covenant raising children in an environment that honors God. That's the design. Can't reinvent it. I didn't make it. Don't be mad at me. I didn't invent it. I'm just telling you what the Bible says it is. Now, is there brokenness that comes into this picture. 
For those of you that know my story, you'll know that I've experienced brokenness in this myself. And God redeems, but he always redeems it back towards the original design. He doesn't reinvent it to some other form of, no, this is just the new normal. No, there is no new normal. The family is the family and the standard is the standard and we uphold it and believe in it. And when it's broken, we do everything by the grace of God to get back to it. And we believe that God redeems. We know that there's some single dads here today and single moms here today and divorced couples here today. There's, there's many of us. It's, it's a very common story. But it doesn't change God's design. It doesn't change what God knows is best. And as I said, all of this is in the context of submission to the true head of the home, which is Jesus. And when the whole family is submitted to God's plan, there's peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. There's, there's health. I'm gonna do some rapid fire scriptures real quick. I'm gonna just show you, just to paint a real quick picture here from the verses, how the Bible speaks about family. And there were so many more I could have included. But Genesis 1, 27 to 28, so God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, both of them reflecting the image of God, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, have kids, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. We know that Adam and Eve were husband and wife and God said, here, here I've created you and my, my command to you is that you would have kids and be fruitful. Exodus 12, 20 verse 12, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Leviticus 19.3, each of you must respect your mother and your father. Proverbs 1 verse 8 says, listen my son to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Proverbs 30 verse 17, here, how's this for a bit of a warning? The eye that mocks a father and scorns obedience to a mother will be picked out by the ravens in the valley and eaten by the vultures. You gotta watch out for those vultures. You better listen to your mom and your dad. Ephesians 6 verse 1 to 4, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Titus 2 verse 3 to 5, likewise, teach older women to be reverent in the way they live to revere God's scriptures. Do not be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but teach what is good. Older women, you have the responsibility to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger woman to love their husbands and children. Train the younger woman to love their husbands and children and be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one may align the will of God. You see, our families are a testimony. And when we break God's design and we refuse to, to submit to God's, what God's best is for us, we begin to bring His word into disrepute. I don't know if you've ever bought some furniture that looked really nice in the store where you bought it and that you know, it was laid out and beautiful. And then when it arrived in your home and they delivered it, it came in a skinny box. And you realize there's some work that is gonna to have to be done here. And men, if you're like me, we don't need instructions. We just build that thing. We figure it out. It's part of what we do. But how often at the end is that thing completely unsafe and unstable? 
nobody wants to sit on it or use it because it may not stand up against any pressure. Oftentimes we have like three or four screws left over and we're like, I'm sure that these were spares. I'm sure they didn't go anywhere. Romans 1 speaks about what our world does when it rejects the knowledge of God and the, and the design of God. Romans 1.28 says, since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, to retain God in their knowledge, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In the Greek, it's a bit of a play on words. It's something like, because they rejected God in their minds, God gave them over to a rejected mind. But I like that word debased. Because what it's saying is that the bottom has fallen out. There is no more foundation for our thinking. So how do we approach sexuality and gender and family and morality and all of these things, meaning and purpose in this life when we have rejected the existence of God? What is the foundation of anything? What happens is our thinking becomes debased and we literally become insane. And if you look at what's going on in our world right now, you will see how that insanity prevails. Right now, prime ministers of countries and presidents are unable to define what a woman is for the love of God. They are not allowed to say that a woman is an adult female with XX chromosomes in every bit of DNA in her body. They're not allowed to say that. You will be tried for hate speech for making that declaration. Charles Spurgeon, as a prophet in the 1900s, said that a time is coming when a man will be called mad for calling the grass green. But what's the foundation of gender once we've removed the creator? If he is not the one who created male and female, he created them, then what is gender? What is marriage? And all of a sudden, all of these designs of God get redefined by a world that seeks to destroy as oppressive. Oppressive structures. Marriage is oppressive. It's archaic. It's, a, it's outdated. It's oppressive. It just wants to make women subservient and, and it wants to, you know, it was created in a patriarchal society where men just wanted to, all of these things, we've heard it all. The bottom falls out completely and our thinking becomes debased. Romans 1.26 goes on to say, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their woman exchanged natural relationships or natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It says not only do they approve of those, not only do they do these things, but they approve of those who do them. There's a militant movement to give approve, approval to anything that anybody says. And it's so funny when those philosophies begin to run against each other. You are whatever you identify as. And then you get white men who say, okay, I identify as a black woman. No, no, it doesn't include race. Why not? Well, we can see your skin isn't black. You can also see I'm not a woman. 
It doesn't make sense, church. Let's not be discipled by the world. God wants people to live great lives, experiencing love and goodness. In Titus 2.11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And so the grace of God teaches us to live righteously in this present age. And that's going to be countercultural sometimes. That's going to be against what everybody's saying on social media. That's going to be against the agenda of this world. But we are called to speak truth to a world because God loves the world. Amen? God, by His grace, redeemed us from baseless living so that instead we can live righteously. It's interesting that Martin Luther, who we've spoken about the last couple of weeks in his journey in the Reformation, he discovered what the core message of the Bible was, the grace of God for us to have the freedom to authentically live life and enjoy it and experience every bit of God's goodness. Martin Luther was a monk and he walked away from, from everything he thought he had to do as a monk to walk in the freedom of God. And this included, he, he sat down when he was in, in, in hiding after being declared an enemy of the empire. He sat in hiding in uh, the Wartburg Castle, parading as a, as a knight called Junker George. And he wrote, and one of the first things that he wrote about was marriage. And he admired God's design for marriage and wrote about it and celebrated and spoke about it. In fact, he said this, he said, there is no more lovely friendly and charming relationship, communion or company than a good marriage. He elevated God's design, but himself, he wasn't sure if he would ever be able to be married because he knew that his death was very probable after having been declared an enemy of the Pope and an enemy of the state. And so at first he thought he would never get married, but wrote about marriage and encouraged others to get married. And then at last he was convinced by the Holy Spirit to marry an ex-nun that ran away from a convent. So you have this ex-monk and this ex-nun meeting in the 1500s and it's this love story. And she was also liberated by the gospel. Her name was Catherine Van Bora. And they got married on the 13th of June, 1525. Together they had six kids and were married for over 20 years and created a happy and a lively home. It says that they built a little kind of like a bowling alley in the garden and they would, they would play bowls with the kids and they, they loved music. And when people came over, they would sit around the table and talk. And he even wrote a book called Table Talk, all the conversations they had around the kitchen table at home. And, and when guests would come, he would take out an instrument and the kids would sing and they'd put on concerts. And this was God's idea of family from somebody who previously had made a promise that he would never get married in order to honor God. Now he realized that honoring God looks like family. He elevated that idea. There was a playfulness in Martin Luther and in the home. He called his wife Kitty, my rib, and had all kinds of names for her. He declared marriage a school for character. Sometimes she'd put a hot plate of food in front of him because she really took care of him. Before he said his sheets were dirty, 
they were like sweaty and he would just flop down into bed every night being tired of ministry and work. And he says, only when he married his wife that he knew what it was like to have clean sheets and a clean home. She provided that atmosphere and, and she would put hot food in front of him. And at one point he was talking so much about the Bible and theology that his food was getting cold. She said to him, Martin, shut up and eat your food. It's getting cold. And he said, oh, I wish that my wife would recite the Lord's prayer before she spoke to me. There was a playfulness in them. Katie ran the household, including the finances, because by all accounts, Martin Luther was so generous that if anything, if he had anything on him, he'd, he'd give it away, including some of their wedding gifts. So Katie hid some of the wedding gifts so that Martin wouldn't give it away. Martin loved pork. So she started raising hogs in the backyard. And Martin gave her the name, my Lord Katie, mistress of the pigsty. Like any good marriage, they faced the best and the worst of life together, including the death of two of their children. Their da one daughter died when she was seven months old, and then their 13-year-old daughter, Magdalene, died after a battle with illness. On all accounts, she was a gentle and a sweet girl. Martin wrote about and said, she didn't make me angry a day in my life. And his sweet daughter, the apple of his eye, was lying on, on the bed, sick. And one of Martin Luther's friends came to visit and to pray for her and recorded how Martin fell on his knees before the bed and wept bitterly, praying that God might save her. Just before her death, Martin and Magdalene had this conversation, addressing her, my little Magdalena, my little girl, soon you will not be with me. Will you be happy without your father? The tired child tenderly and softly answered, yes, dear father, as God wants. Already at that age, because he had raised her in that home, she had a love for Jesus and an understanding of his love for her. In a letter that Luther wrote after his daughter's death, he said, she died having total faith in Christ. I loved her so very much. Isn't that what we would want to say of our kids? That they had total faith in Christ. Even the blow of losing your child is, can be softened by the knowledge that you will meet them again in eternity. He loved his family. And his daughter said, Dad, even when you're not around, my happiness is in Jesus. I'm amazed at how many parents are willing to risk the eternal future of their children by number one, not bringing them to church and not allowing them to encounter God's love in the home and thinking that, that, that that's not something that you want to risk. You see, families and marriages that have Jesus at the center are able to endure all things. The hardship just brings, brings them closer because they have committed themselves to each other. Our generation wants to redefine commitment as oppression and as condemned marriage as an outdated structure of oppression that keeps people from living how they want. But really, it's a vehicle for freedom. You will remain selfish as long as you don't love something more than you love yourself. You will never mature until you get to that place where you're able to 
take up your responsibility. I always used to wonder, what does it mean to be a man? Does it mean going to the gym, having muscles? Does it mean driving really fast in your car? Does it mean being aggressive around other men? What does it mean to be a man? And I realized being a man, regardless of anything else, is when you take up your responsibility and you fulfill it faithfully even when you don't want to. It's the same for being a woman of God, being an adult, being mature. Jordan Peterson, the well-known psychologist, said, in the West, because we are very immature, we think the purpose of marriage is happiness, is the happiness of the people who are involved in the marriage, the husband and the wife. That's not the purpose of the marriage at all. The purpose of marriage is not personal fulfillment, but long-term, the long-term facilitation of their psychological and spiritual development and the establishment of an environment that's beneficial to children. That's the purpose. But we've made this everything about us. How happy am I? Oh, I'm not happy with you. I'll find someone new. Regardless of what happens to the kids, that's not right. It's not God's best. Marriage is the flower bed of the future for the germination of godly generations. The purpose of marriage is companionship, procreation, and redemption. So Colossians 3, 18 to 22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases God. And fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I wanna say to the men, you have the responsibility of leading your family in the ways of Christ. You have the responsibility of imparting truth and giving yourselves up for them just as Christ gave himself up for us. You are not just the leader of the home, you're the lead servant of the home. That's what it looks like to be the leader. You should be out serving your wife and your kids at all times. You are the one that lives for your family. And if you're gonna be faithful to that, it means that that is your main priority in life. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. When you discipline your children, do so because you delight in them, not because you are irritated by them and you, because you, you, you've got to be careful of discouraging them. Wives, submit to your husbands as in the Lord. Now that word submit, submission, get under the mission, get behind your husband, support him, encourage him, be there for him, help him. Help him be the man of God that God's called him to be. Help him be the leader that he needs to be. All of you know that a leader is nothing, a captain is nothing without the vice captain. That support allows the leader to flourish. So stand by your husband. Don't speak badly about him. Don't undermine his godly role. Again, if you finally convince your husband to doubt himself completely and he believes himself incapable of leading your home, what have you achieved? Why, would, why do women feel that that's gonna benefit them when they break their husbands down systematically. It's like chipping away at the central pillar of your home and when it collapses, it's going to collapse on you. It's not gonna benefit you. You've just destroyed God's provision for care and protection in your own life. Love your husband, look after him, cherish him, build him up so he can lead in confidence. I'll tell you a little secret to all the women here today. Your husbands are far more sensitive than they appear. <laughs> they might not cry. Instead of crying, you know what they'll do? They'll throw something. They'll shout. But men have got 
the weight of wanting to be responsible for the family. And when that gets, when that masculinity and that call gets knocked, they begin to doubt themselves in all kinds of ways. So be kind to your husband as well. Children, obey your, pre- your parents. This pleases God. It's an incredible statement. And dads, look out for your kids. In any good team, there are roles and there are responsibilities. And if we watched our favorite rugby team or our favorite football team take the field and there were no positions, everybody just ran after the ball, we would say, what is going on? And if no captain had been selected and there was no leader on the field to call them to order, we would say, fire the manager. This is poor design, poor structure. The team will never win like this. At the same time, we decry God's structure and God's leadership that's supposed to make the family win. If we do that, we certainly will lose. So instead of trying to reinvent the structure, why don't we submit to Jesus as Lord, as the one who knows better than we do? Why don't we humble ourselves before God so that we can truly discover how good God's plan for us is? and flourish as a result. And that's our heart towards every one of you here today, that you as your family will absolutely flourish. Don't let the world disciple you into another picture. Trust God, honor each other, and you will experience the goodness of God's masterpiece. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning as we pray?